Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I need your help. If you love this podcast, you will love my children's book. It's called Princess Charming, and I am really trying to drum up pre-order sales. You might not know this, but before a book comes out is actually a really important time for the whole book's trajectory. So... Please pre-order Princess Charming, which comes out April 19th today. Just stop what you're doing and go do that, please. When it arrives on April 19th, you can give it to a loved one in your life, a niece, a grandchild, a child, a student, a kid walking by on the street, anybody. But if you could do this, here is my offer. If you email me your receipt showing me that you bought the book online somewhere and pre-ordered it, Email info at zibbyowens.com. That's info at zibbyowens.com. And I will pick 10 people to do a special giveaway project award to from my new Bonfire merch store, which you should also check out, which is um, the Zibby Owens Media Bonfire store where you can get all sorts of cool t-shirts and uh, tote bags and author sayings and all sorts of great stuff. So what did I say? 10 of you are going to get a special care package of your choice from the Bonfire store. And I will pick at random from all of you who pre-order the book. So if that wasn't clear, go pre-order Princess Charming. Again, it's called Princess Charming. It's my debut picture book. It's really cute and great. And it's illustrated by Holly Haddam. And then after you get the receipt, screenshot it or forward it to me at info at zibbyowens.com and you will be entered to win one of 10 exciting care packages. So go off and order. Thank you so much. Bye. Jennifer Egan is the author of The Candy House. Jennifer is also the author of six previous books of fiction, including Manhattan Beach, which was the winner of the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And by the way, this is like a sequel to that. The Keep, The Story Collection, Emerald City, Look at Me, which was a National Book Award finalist, and The Invisible Circus. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Granta, McSweeney's, and The New York Times Magazine. 
Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the candy house. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is such a, a thrill. I've been a fan for a long time. So anyway, delighted that you could come on. Okay. Would you mind telling listeners a little bit about the candy house and particularly how you carried Bix through from the goon squad and when you knew that he would return? Well, so the candy house is like a visit from the goon squad, which by the way, is not a prerequisite in no way. Do you have need to have read goon squad? In fact, I, I think I think it actually might work better going the other way, starting with Candy House. If I had to choose, (laughs) that's how I would probably advise people to do it. But like A Visit from the Goon Squad, for those who have read it, it's about a, a kind of loose grouping of people that are linked in various ways. And I follow them over time. In this case, the earliest story is 1965 and the latest is 2035. So the range is even greater than Goon Squad. And the I guess you could say that the in some ways the the through line of the Candy House is an invention created by a guy named Bix Bowden, who is a sort of tech wizard. And this device allows people to externalize their memories on or, and their consciousnesses really onto sleek, beautiful, luscious cube <laughs> for their own perusal and edification because we know so much more than we know we know. But one ancillary possibility that exists with this device is that people can share it online to a kind of collective, which is their price of entry if they want to view the contents of other people's consciousnesses. So it's pretty much exactly analogous to something like Napster or DNA information. You know, you if you if you enter into that conglomerate and want to know if you have half siblings or whatever, you offer the same access to other people. So that's kind of the that's that's a a kind of spinal column, if you will. But the stories are wide ranging and and people have various different relationships to this technology, in some cases, no relationship at all. In terms of Bix, he, like many people in the Candy House, is such a small character in Goon Squad that a lot of people would not even remember him. That's true of a lot of the people in Candy House. In fact, some of them are only mentioned by name in Good Squad, but never actually appear. And in a way, you know, I was, I never really saw Goon Squad as being finished exactly. I mean, I reached a point where it felt like it was, it had an arc and it was sort of the best I could do at that point. But I never felt like I was done with any of that because the principle of the book is the following of my own curiosity from one you know, kind of curious sighting through the corner of my eye to the next. And so it was natural that I was imagining beyond its borders, even by the time it was published. And I just followed that same principle of curiosity into the new material. It's sort of like a Robert Altman film where like you take one character and then like you follow the next one off and the next one, you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. I mean, I was fascinated by by his work, you know, right away when I even first saw it. And I think because I was interested in using that kind of storytelling in fiction. Awesome. Jennifer, you have been writing and producing the most amazing fiction and stories for years. Tell me how you got started and when you knew you were a writer and did you see this all coming? Is this where you wanted to be with your writing? Tell me a little bit about that. Okay. It's a lot of questions. I'll start with the last one. I did not, I feel 
very lucky to even have a career doing this. And so I, in a way, I do feel like I've had the best luck I could possibly have. And I'm, I feel so grateful for that. I never assumed that I would have any success. I think sometimes people are moved to write because they read other people's work and they think, oh, I could do better. You know, this isn't that great. I, I never thought that. I felt more in awe of the work that I read and thought, like, I can never do this. What really got me writing in the first place, I, I mean, I'd always enjoyed writing and always enjoyed reading, but I was kind of a sciencey kid. I loved chemistry. I loved biology. I loved dissection. I really thought I would be a surgeon. <laughs> My grandfather was a surgeon, and I loved hearing him talk about his work, and I loved his medical books, which were which I looked at in a pretty ghoulish way in retrospect. Like I was very interested in, you know, the body in the most ghoulish sense. I wanted to dig up dead people and see what they looked like. I was that kind of person. But interestingly, when I hit puberty, that totally changed and I developed a kind of squeamishness about blood. So (laughs) Dr. Freud can, uh, (laughs) I'm sure, have a good time figuring that out. But the bottom line was suddenly medicine did not seem as appealing. Okay. Then I wanted to be an archaeologist. And that's actually what I thought I would do when I applied to college. So I applied I wanted to go to UPenn in anthropology. They have an amazing anthropology department. But I took a gap year. And during that gap year, the first thing I did was that I went on a little archaeological dig in Campsville, Illinois. Now, this was not as exotic as I had been hoping for. <laughs> More along the lines of, you know, Africa, Greece. <laughs> but it turned out that, you know, I couldn't be hired to go on a dig like that. I, I didn't have the knowledge to understand that people actually pay to go on digs. So I paid like 300 bucks to go to Campsville, Illinois and dig for Mississippian Indian remains, which was very interesting, but it showed me immediately that I was not as interested in archaeology as I had thought. Did you find anything? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, wow. were, we were looking for projectile points, what I had always called arrowheads mm-hmm. and little p- and pottery. And it was everywhere because we were huh. digging in, a, in a, basically a garbage heap. <laughs> but, you know, I had imagined pulling big, beautiful pots out of the earth. And of course, that's not the state that they're in when they've been underground for, you know, tens of thousands of years. So I just realized that there, I had a fantasy of archaeology that in no way matched the reality, which was hot somewhat dull, I thought, very limited in scope. I had one square meter of earth. And it was just, you know, it was a it was a a wake up that I think so many people have when they confront their fantasy in a very tactile way. So anyway, what I ended up doing that year was mostly just working to earn money. And then I got a backpack and went to Europe where I had never been. Growing up in California, it was a really long way away. And so I started traveling in Europe. And I began having what I now realize were panic attacks, but I had never heard that term. This was 1981, summer of 1981. And all I knew was that I actually thought I was going crazy. And it will tell you something about my high school years that I actually thought maybe these were drug flashbacks (laughs) and that I had destroyed my brain through my bad behavior in high school. So I was kind of a wreck. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that I was a wreck. But what I discovered through that adversity, because it really ended up being a very hard trip and I ended up having to come home early, 
which felt like a real failure at the time. But what I found was that writing was the, the thing that really tethered me to the world around me, whether I was having a great time or whether it was hard. And so it just, I realized how essential it was. It sort of closed the loop of my cycle of relation to the world around me. So I got to college really knowing that I wanted to write. And I I have to say, honestly, I've never really wavered, even Mm -hmm. though my success has been extremely incremental Partly because I I was honestly not a very precocious talent. I mean, I was okay, but I was not anything special for a long time. And so, although I felt like I was not being, you know, I, of course, one always thinks everyone else is getting all the good stuff and I'm not. I don't think I really deserved it. I think I didn't get any less than I deserved. And I'm really glad I didn't get more than I deserved, which a lot of people do. Hmm. Because our culture works that way. We're looking for people to raise up. And if that happens too soon, it's very hard for the person who's been raised up because sometimes there's not as much to follow it up with. There's a kind of self-consciousness that comes with feeling like there are expectations that maybe one can't meet. Mm -hmm. All of those things can interrupt the natural and often kind of gradual evolution of one's own, you know, approach and voice. And because success was incremental for me, I felt like I was able to keep developing kind of slowly. I was lucky in that I was able to publish books you know, but it, but, and each one did a little better than the one before, but I was never one of those people who was kind of thrust into the public eye at a young age. And although in the moment I was seething with envy for the people who (laughs) did have that in retrospect, if I think it's probably the thing I'm most grateful for. Huh. I wonder, do you think that if you were your younger self, like starting publishing today, if I just feel like there's so much pressure to have your first book do really well now. It even starts before that. There's pressure to have a huge sale because then you'll have the push that might result in the book doing really well. There's no difference. Even with social media and all the things that exist now that didn't exist when I started, that pressure was still there, very Mm -hmm. much so. And I think it's, I mean, there are immediate rewards, but I think there's a big price to pay sometimes. And of course, we never see that in the moment. I mean, that's sort of what the the, the candy house is all about, really. The allure of immediate satisfaction, that it's just something deep about us humans. We almost never stop and say, well, wait a minute, what's the cost of this? It's just not how we're built, we run toward the candy house. That's true. So I think that fame is a candy house of sorts. And I'm guessing almost anyone, I mean, first of all, no writer is famous in the way that in the way that fame exists in other realms in, mm-hmm. in American culture. But I think if you went to any movie star, and I don't really know any, and said, you know, is there any downside to being so famous? I would be flabbergasted if any of them didn't say, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I've interviewed a few authors who like hit it really big early in their 20s, right? And now they're in their 40s and things are right. There's always 
And even with a big successful first book, the pressure of the second book, but then especially over time, I just heard about this movie that's being filmed that's a, exactly about this, like a 25-year-old literary superstar and what happens in her 40s. I know, oh, how interesting. Right? Oh, yeah. I can't someone's making that. Yeah. That's really, that's very interesting to me. I mean, anything that makes people interested in literary production, I think is a good thing. So I'm really glad that's coming out. You know, I want to keep people reading, obviously, not even just for self-interested reasons. <laughs> keeps people engaged and smart and empathetic. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, by the time I really had a hit, which mm-hmm. was from the Goon Squad, I was... I mean, I was pushing 50, you know, I I was not a kid. I had published several books. I really had a sense of the literary landscape. By the time I won anything, and I had never won a raffle, (laughs) but by the time I had won a prize, I had already judged a prize. And I understood so well that there is not, that is not, it's not a judgment from on high. It's the best compromise five people or whoever (laughs) can come up with. If you're lucky enough to be that compromise, you should just kiss the ground and, (laughs) you know, hope that your good luck doesn't run out too fast. That's all it means. And yet it seems so iconic once it's, once it happens. So I knew all that. And I think it, it helped me to at least not get a big head, I hope, but it still was very hard to write another book very hard. And so the difficulty I had, and it was seven years before I published another book, that difficulty tells me that a person in their twenties, or let's just say what I would have gone through in my twenties, that might've been it. (laughs) I'm not sure I actually would have had a career if I had (laughs) had so much good luck early. I don't know. I guess it's a test of how strong I am. I don't know. Sometimes I don't think I'm actually I think I, I I just don't know if I would have had the inner rudder to guide myself through all of those external, all that external input and those expectations to hmm. continue to develop. And if you can't keep getting better, things start to plateau and then go down. You've got to keep getting better. It can have- be really hard to do that. I was going to say, like, how do you, like, you you can identify yourself like a huge shift in quality, perhaps? Like, I don't know if other people, I mean, we're, all, we're always our, our own worst critics, right? So how do you, how do you go from where you begin to winning prizes if, if like, what do you do to get better, right? We can practice, you can take classes, like, because some people don't necessarily get better. Like, how do you make sure you keep improving? That's really my question. Oh, that's such a, okay, that's a great question. The answer is we can't make sure that we keep improving. <laughs> but what I, the way I think of it is, none of us really knows what we're capable of and we'll only ever know looking back. So <laughs> the way I look at it is trying to create optimal circumstances to get as good as I can And I don't know how good that is because we never know. So part of the challenge for anyone is identifying those optimal circumstances. Like what do I need to do this work at the best possible level that I can? And it's so different for every writer. Hmm. For me, you know, I mean, of course, one thing that I think is true in any practice, you know, a sport or any other skill is just doing it again and again. So anyone gets better, you know, a lawyer, a doctor, the more times you do it, the better you get. So, so just continuing to produce 
that's another reason that being stymied in the way that I was after Goon Squad was so successful and the way I think I would have been even more so in my 20s, being stymied has a real cost. I mean, if if 15 years pass and I'm not publishing because I'm stuck, those are maybe three books or four books that I would have produced that would have helped me to improve and learn more that I'm not actually creating. So that, that's an immediate loss. Another way that I really try to get better is by not repeating myself. And some of this is just temperamental, like, you know, because I don't write autofiction. In fact, the opposite. I am allergic to anything that smells of me or my life. I feel bored immediately. <laughs> And I really like to write as a kind of escape. You know, I'm looking for another world to live in, in addition to my life, not my life twice. (laughs) You know, so in a way, for me, the feeling of, of freshness and novelty is key because if I feel like I'm doing something I've done before, that is sort of like writing about myself. Again, I just have this sense of dullness, but you know, so just trying to kind of challenge oneself to do new things, I think is another way of getting better. If you just keep doing the same thing, I mean, you could argue that you're getting better and better at doing that thing. And this just may be one of those temperamental differences. I think the other thing is, for me, listening to feedback is very crucial. And I don't mean reading reviews necessarily, because that's in a way, I, I I don't know, I don't look to reviews to tell me how to become a better writer, but I try to do a huge amount of due diligence before I ever have a, a book in the hands of a reviewer. Hmm. And I just use a layers of readers are part of my entire process, starting with a writing group, which I, de- which I dedicated the candy. Hat I saw that. Yep. So there they're hearing stuff very early, sometimes before I even know what I'm doing, just to kind of hear it as they hear it. We only read aloud, see whether it feels like it has a voice, if, if it feels alive. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of a basic question. And then they, you know, I they all read my, my books at a much later phase when I actually have a whole manuscript that I've been through several times and it has reached that I've sort of taken as far as I can, they read it. And then I have additional readers, uh, quite a few who read things at different phases. So for me, finding out how what I'm doing is landing, whether it's working, honestly, is crucial. But again, I would never say you have to do that because I know other writers who really don't and they keep Mm -hmm. getting better. So it, it really does come down to identifying the circumstances that lead us to do our best work and give us the greatest chance of getting better at it. And that's all we can do. (laughs) Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. 
Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a hundred times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus, or when my husband gets to LA, or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and It makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. I like this idea of, of showing lots of readers. It's like launching a product, like a new perfume without anybody smelling it, right? Like you, you, you want to you make sure before you invest all this effort and time and everything to market the product that you have the best product you can possibly have. And yet, because uh, it's I mean, creative, it, I think people are protective over, over their work. Yes, for sure. But sometimes that's appropriate because some for some people it would be it would be the wrong move. It would mm-hmm. be confusing or confusing. Mm-hmm. For me, I know what I'm trying to do. Okay. What I don't know is whether I'm doing it. <laughs> okay. And so it's critical for me to find out whether I am doing that and mm-hmm. where it where I am not doing that. So I I cannot imagine publishing books without many many readers, but I also know people who do not work that way, which is so fascinating. And in their case, there may be other conditions that lead them to their best work that and they, they need to make sure to honor those conditions. That's one of the big challenges is just finding out what one's own process is. Yes. I think that can apply to many things in life. Sure. <laughs> right? What yes. are the best? How do you set yourself up for success? I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Were there any parts of the candy house that materially changed because of your reader feedback? Oh my God. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, and I don't just mean the kind of due diligence of this is someone who knows more about X, Y, or Z than I do, which I have to do a lot because Mm -hmm. I'm never writing about myself. So just to give a tiny example, and this was this, I did kind of late, but you know, I, I, I start with this conversation of a bunch of academics Mm -hmm. Well, I am not an academic and I've never really sat in on a conversation like that, truth be told. So at a certain point, I showed that chapter to a friend of mine who's a tenured art history professor. And she immediately said, there's some stuff here that is not the way people would talk. And she Mm -hmm. gave me tips. And I do that all the time. And I never do it enough. I mean, there will be things like, for example, with Manhattan Beach, which has a lot of technicalities in it about deep sea diving and merchant sailing and the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I was all over that stuff, but there were all kinds of things that were wrong about Catholicism. (laughs) I mean, I'm allegedly a Catholic, but it was a measure of 
how non-active a Catholic I am, that there were just certain basic things that I had wrong. So I had to keep making changes once the book came out. And that may happen with this too. So there's due diligence, but then but that's in a way not what I'm talking about because that's something no, really that's like anyone should do. That's sort of obvious. But it's more like, for example, there were there were some areas where I thought that by saying very little, I was suggesting a great deal. Mm-hmm. But one what one of my readers pointed out that what it the way it actually was reading was that that there was no feeling at all around this thing. That by saying very little. I was just glossing over something and suggesting that it was meaningless. So in a way, the impression I was making was precisely the opposite of the one I thought I was making. Those are the kinds of things where I really want to know. One thing also, like, I just want to know where is your attention captured? Where, where is the, where does, where is the heat and where are, is it cold? I mean, those basic questions are really helpful to know what feels repetitive and what feels exciting. I don't really need to, people to tell me how to solve problems. I just need them to tell me where they're having problems. Hmm. Sometimes people do also tell me how they <laughs> solve them. And sometimes, I mean, the whole process, I should add, is agony. It's <laughs> agony. I never want to hear that anything is wrong, ever. So this is, this is a kind of a self-induced period of suffering that I undergo to achieve a result. It is awful because every single time I hear that anything is wrong, my first thought is I can't fix it, fix it. It's over. And this book sucks. So, you know, it's, I don't mean to make it sound like this is just a marvelous fun process. It's not, it's very uncomfortable, but I do it. It's like going to the doctor, (laughs) you know, no one wants to go. It takes a lot of time. It's unpleasant. You don't want to hear a lot of what you're going to hear. You have to do it to be healthy. (laughs) So it's, I want my book to be healthy and I have to take it to the doctor repeatedly, all different kinds of doctors, (laughs) specialists, specialists. Yes. Oh my gosh. Now you need insurance. Your insurance are like, you know, the support group for the doc. Anyway, so funny. I love that. And of course you can't, you don't want to choose the opposite, right? Like writing not writing is not an option, it sounds like for you, like not to do the whole process. I mean, if that's the best option, then it's then it's time to start thinking about a different career. I mean, <laughs> I, I could imagine that I would reach a point maybe where I would just think I can't do this anymore. I'm nowhere near there. I want to do it very much. But for me, not to engage in that kind of rigorous feedback process would be tantamount to saying, I, I don't think I can do this anymore because it's really an inherent part of the process for me. Wow. Amazing. Do you think if somebody were starting out today, you would suggest that they do this or is it only if they have complete strong commitment to it? Like, what would you say to someone starting out? You mean to write fiction? Yeah. To write fiction. Someone who's 
25 years old today. And I know we keep talking. If you're 25 and listening to this, we've been talking about you the whole time. No, I'm kidding. But this person's starting out. I mean, it's hard. It's agony. And yet the search for the passages that are alive, like even when you talk about it, your whole face lights up, like finding the heat and what's alive and what's this, you know, you get so excited. Like, how do you, what would you say to someone who's starting? How, how to, how to get it and how to keep it going? And should they even try? You know, sometimes I think that a sign of having found one's vocation, and by that I can, I could, I mean a job that really is enriching and would be worth spending one's life getting better at. I feel like one sign that you may have found that is that the the drudgery and the discomfort, which is part of every job at yes. one point or another, and even the discouragement, which mm-hmm. is also part of every job is is a spur rather than a hindrance. Mm-hmm. If that is happening, if if being discouraged, if being uncomfortable makes you want to just try harder and overcome that, to me that's a sign that this is the right path. So if if getting feedback is agony and misery and is making life worse, that might be a sign that this isn't the right realm. I think that it it just, you know, there's no right answer for everyone. It's hard enough to find the right answer for anyone, right. for anyone to find their own right answer. So I think, and, and, and in a way, the only way to really find out is to give it a try. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of discouragement early on. And in, and in something like writing fiction, you know, even achieving the highest level of success is not going to bring the money, the fame, or the cultural currency that a lot of other realms might. You've got to do it because you love it. I mean, it's just, you know, for example, I was rereading James Baldwin's novel, Another Country, recently, and I was laughing because there's a point where this guy starts writing a novel just to make money, you know, <laughs> kind of a sellout, really. He's just he's just going to go ahead and write a novel. And it's like, oh, my God, things have been changed <laughs> since the 1960s when that book was written. That is not really a surefire way to increase your income. So, but I think there are so many great reasons to write fiction. If if you love it, it is the best escape in the world. And it also, while it does not have the cultural currency that it had even in the 1960s, much less the 19th century when fiction writers were like rock stars and movie stars combined, Mm -hmm. it does something that nothing else can do. And that is it gives us access to the interior lives of other people. And nothing that is image-based is doing that. You know, if you are looking at a picture, you are not experiencing someone's internal life. You're experiencing their simulation of their internal life. And I include streamers playing video games, the fun of watching that is the simulacrum of being inside someone's consciousness, but it's performative. Mm -hmm. Fiction actually puts us there. That's what it does. There are no pictures. So it is specific and it is unique. And I think as long as nothing else can do that, as long as no one actually invents own your unconscious... (laughs) then, you know, we're, we are doing something that's kind of cool and provides an, a, a sort of escape and a sort of transport out of one's own life that nothing else really can. But I will say it's, it's a muscle that, that requires exercise to really be strong. So people who don't generally read 
long form fiction who pick up a book and start, you know, expecting to be, to achieve transportive liftoff, it's not going to happen right away. You have to, you have to become a good reader. It's not, it doesn't take that long, but (laughs) it's a little more work than looking at a picture, but the reward in my opinion is a lot greater. I totally agree. I, that was very well said. I could not agree more the power of books to escape, especially when things in the real world are very frightening, which they have been over the last couple of years in particular, is the bomb. We feel like it's so hard to concentrate and it can be. But I think one thing the last two years have really shown us is human beings are incredibly adaptable. Mm -hmm. We will embrace and do our best to thrive in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And all of that is to say that it is amazing how quickly, if you, if you put your phone in another room and sit down with a physical book, it is amazing how quickly checking that phone does not feel essential. And I say this as someone who can be completely phone addicted. It's, some of it is just training ourselves. We are, we are like seals to be trained. We have to get the fish out and give ourselves a fish at the right time and move away the distractions. It's not as hard as we think. It's true. You know, I was reading this weekend and my husband like kept being like, well, let's watch, you want to watch this or let's do this. And I was like, you don't know, you don't understand like where I am right now. Like this is so intense. Like where, hold on. I gotta, like, I gotta finish this before I can do this. (laughs) I know. And that feeling of just being so lost mm-hmm. in, so in a narrative without requiring a machine mm-hmm. is just a really, to me, it feels like a kind of independence and a kind of self-sufficiency that I don't ever have when I'm relying on a device for my entertainment. True. Yes. My TV never works. I'm like, it's ridiculous. I can never, it's forget it. If I can ever decide what to watch. There are too many clickers. That's right? the problem. I, I just cannot get it to work. Now I don't even want to know. So books are much easier. I agree. You open and shut. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your time today and for chatting with me and sharing your love. Of, I have everything you need. I have everything I need. It's all good. good. Yes. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. It really is. All right. Well, thank you again. And... We will see you around all these yeah, literary, so. literary things. <laughs> I hope so. Next time in person. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right. I'll Thanks so much. Me. All right. Thank take care. You. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 